Hello and welcome to Making the Historian, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to study for his comprehensive exams. Now, in the run-up to the exams, I'm going to be, you know, going through the really big things that I've taken away from uh, all of this reading. The idea is, is that when I'm in the exam, I kind of don't want to answer the uh, examiner's questions directly sometimes. I want to push the conversation to those things that I really think matter. And so I am taking the opportunity to put down my foot and make some big narratives about what I think matters in all of this history that I've been reading. So uh, over the next couple episodes, I'm going to be talking about the 18th century. Last episode, we talked about the growth of the economy. Now I'm going to be discussing changes in culture. Here's the big story. We talked about the uh, spread of the national market with the economy. People start trading at greater distances more often, and they start to get wrapped up in increasingly big credit networks. These demand new kinds of social formations to deal with the problem of trust. If you're talking with people in ever-denser cities, you need to trust them, but you can't rely on the old standards of trust, like knowing people, and so you need something else. If you're trading with people in ever larger distances, you need ways of figuring out trust with them. These new methods of trust end up being powerful tools of social organization, and as they develop, they gain control over people, resources, and space. Alongside this development, we see a new group of people, usually urbanites, people who have a lot of capital but who also have to work. They develop a self-consciously urban culture, one which is oriented towards new kinds of experiences that are more suitable to their hardworking, industrious credit economy. These are people who, uh, you know, celebrate probity, self-control, intelligence, and complexity in these, their daily life. When you connect these two developments together of new kinds of organizations and new cultural formations of the uh, urban middle class, you get a story of 18th century culture because these organizations start to push the new kinds of attitudes towards working and hanging out uh, that dominate the late 18th and 19th century. So we're going to go through these developments in turn. When the market expands, you have a problem of dealing with strangers. We can see this most clearly in the new high-density cities. Uh, to make friends in the city, you have a problem because you don't know the people who you live next to. You might not know the people who you trade with. You might not know the people that you eat next to at the ordinary. And even though you might uh, be next to them, even though you might have daily experiences with them, you don't know their past. And so certain kinds of organizations that serve as uh, markers of trust become increasingly important. These are sometimes religious. Uh, the dissenting Protestant sects like the Baptists, uh, who demand a lot of self-control and surveillance from their members, are sometimes pointed to as organization-building organizations, groups that teach people how to build other groups. But they also uh, teach people how to trust one another. You uh, trust the church to maintain surveillance over church members, and so 
If you have dealings with a church member, you can trust them more than you would a complete stranger. There are other kinds of organizations that do this. There are clubs and societies. There's also certain social spaces that act as filters to make sure that only the right sort of people come in. Um, these can be as varied as spa towns like Bath, which were expensive and so only let in the middle and the upper classes. But there's also particular kinds of places that are open only to people with enough cultural capital, like pleasure gardens or theaters or reading libraries. And these all serve the same purpose to serve as external markers of trust. Strangers who you met in these sort of social situations were a little bit less strange because you knew that you all had a mediating force in the organization that could punish them if something went wrong. This had a feedback loop of teaching people how to work in these kinds of organizations, which gave them more power, which allowed them to work increasingly more at a distance and with more people. Uh, a greater facility with working with anonymous people that's generated through these trust-building organizations allows people to deal more with anonymous people and thus increase the range of the sort of activities that they do. And so this creates a feedback loop. As successful organizations teach people to deal with strangers more, people deal with strangers more and so need to rely more on trust-building organizations. Part of this was the adoption of particular kinds of social behavior that were better suited towards anonymous social situations. We might call this politeness. Uh, these are uh, attitudes towards social life which sought to limit the damage of you know, unrestrained talk, that sought to help people civilize themselves through discussion. And we can see politeness is doing three things for these new kinds of, of uh, trust-centric social organizations. Um, it helped people, having politeness helped people have more diverse and thus more pleasurable and powerful networks because they reduced the risks of disagreement. Impolite uh, social situations like inns often degenerated into acrimony when strangers met each other because you'd be drinking with somebody, somebody would say that they like you know, something obnoxious like they supported the uh, uh, Jacobites or something, and there'd be a fight. However, politeness suggested not to bring up topics that would lead to disagreement. It suggested leaving for conversation only those topics that could be agreed upon by the group. It suggested that instead of direct disagreement, you had indirect disagreement, which was easier to swallow. Secondly, these new standards of politeness became markers of trustworthy people. It was a new marker of an urban gentleman who had self-control and probity, who was able to be somebody who was let into these new social spaces and thus trusted. And so in some ways, politeness became a proxy for a clubbable individual, a person who was accepted into these new spaces of, you know, high trust, high anonymity social situations. Finally, this kind of social life uh, focused on the values that these new people were good at. Self-control, complexity, literacy, accounting, numeracy. When you read, it's, it's, it's like nerds. What do nerds like to do right now? Well, it, it focuses on the stuff that nerds are uh, ostensibly good at. Computers, thinking, complexity, planning. Um, and not on the stuff that nerds are ostensibly bad at, socializing, dancing. 
But as the city created the necessity of these trust-building organizations, they also threatened them, especially when it came to the raising of children. People were worried that young men and young women would be corrupted by the pleasures of the city, that when they had a choice between the traditional values of drinking and dancing and giving money and all that sort of stuff, and the new middle-class values of probity, self-control, politeness, people were worried that they would make the wrong choice. And so there were moves with these new powerful organizations to reform popular culture. You got this in a number of ways. You had various societies for reforming manners, which rose up in the early 18th and late 18th centuries, uh, which attempted to police uh, public life, to make it more ordered, and in particular, to make sure that the lower classes were more ordered, that they were adopting the sort of values that the middle classes liked, like, you know, not swearing, not getting drunk on the Sabbath, not drinking in general, not, you know, making public life a miserable mess of football and bear baiting. But you also got education societies, religious societies, and factories. Factories were meant to do the same thing of teaching the poor how to be good, self-controlled, middle-class people. And also, this new kind of social formulation tried to convince higher-class people that their sorts of values were worthwhile. And they did this by, you know, searching for status, purchasing honors, and so on. But there was another move. One move was to move out and try to reform the public life, but another move that became increasingly popular in the late 18th century was to reform private life, was to turn inward and to make the domestic space the space where children were taught how to be good middle-class people. And this is where I think that we get the development of the separation of the spheres. It's in this reliance on the middle-class home as the moral education of middle-class children um, which is a turning away of an attempt to reform the public. So young middle-class men could be trusted to go out into the public and interact with it, even though it was corrupting, only once they had adopted the uh, moral standards of behavior at home taught by women. And these changes created broader uh, effects in the organizational field of culture. First, the new kind of trust-bearing organizations became increasingly powerful, and so they were able to compete more aggressively for space and for time than those unorganized traditional cultural pastimes that had once dominated urban and rural life, like bear baiting and bull baiting and all of that vast, you know, plethora of uh, uh, very picturesque rural habits. Public streets, for instance, were increasingly closed off uh, making them ordered, uh, kicking out the old kinds of play and ritual that were done in public in favor of organized activities that happened in private, club rooms, cards, assembly rooms, and so on. And furthermore, as you get this expanse of national and international markets, as people are talking more and more 
uh, across cities and across the entire nation, you get a homogenization of cultural experience as a result of organizational isomorphism. We know that when organizational fields form, that over the long run, they tend to look more and more alike. And this is also in part what happens. So you have two pulls on quote unquote traditional or popular culture. The first is that popular culture is being outcompeted for public space. And the second is that popular culture itself is becoming increasingly homogenized as uh, the nation starts to knit itself together. Thanks very much for listening to this episode of Making a Historian. Um, I think it was kind of dense. I hope it was interesting. Uh, if you like the show, rate and review us on iTunes, share us on social media, drop me a line at, at MackieTeacher, M-A-C-K-I-E-T-E-A-C-H-E-R. That is a Twitter handle. Um, thanks very much to Jonathan Lear for the music and Duncan Barton for the image. We will be back tomorrow where we will be uh, finishing up our discussion of 18th century uh, big ideas and themes. And we will be dealing with uh, politics and with organizations and history. Thanks very much for listening.